This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. This week our guest is the globe-trotting drummer Brendan Buckley. He's been playing with Shakira for 20 years and since he moved to LA in 2004 has rounded out his resume with a long list of rock, pop, and international artists including Miley Cyrus, Lee Home Wang, Perry Farrell, JJ Lynn, and Tegan and Sarah. We will soon be adding to our Patreon portfolio, so if you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, a donation of as little as $1 a month gets you access to this exclusive educational content. Tons of really useful tips, tricks, and lessons in there from former guests of ours, including Ben Caesar and Jake Reed. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron to help us keep going strong. We also appreciate the feedback we get in the form of ratings and reviews. This helps new listeners find us. As you might have heard recently, if you leave a review on iTunes or YouTube or whatever platform you listen to us on, we're likely to read it in an episode and give you a shout out. So please give us that feedback. It's really helpful to hear from you. So I talked to Brendan while he was in China. He was there for a week to play two different gigs in two different cities with two different artists. And as you'll hear, this kind of trip is not uncommon for him. In addition to his long-standing gig with Shakira, he does a lot of work for a lot of artists in a lot of places, be it ongoing or just one-offs here and there. It was great to hear about what he does, how he does it, and how he got there. So let's get to it. Hope you enjoy this talk with Brendan Buckley. So you're in you're in China. You're stranded in China. Pretty much. <laughs> Man. And you were supposed to be home like three days ago or something? Well, here's the deal. It's a little awkward, but what happened was uh, I have two gigs in China with two different artists a week apart. Okay. So they're exactly one week. They're both on Saturdays, two different singers. Uh, so each one is a different promoter and everything. So they each bought me round trip tickets to China. And I said, you know what, rather than make them have to like buy me a flight in between, I'll just do that and I'll, I'll get the miles. I'll go home. I'll see my family for three days and I'll come back, you know? Wow. But then, but then the first show that was on a Saturday, it wound up getting delayed one day because a typhoon hit and almost blew away the whole state stadium. And then when we, when we, and then the next day when I was going to fly home, my connection was through Hong Kong and then all these protesters stormed the, um, airport and right. shut it down. Right. So then I had to delay it one more day. And then he said, okay, now we have a flight that'll get you home. And it was getting me home basically like an hour before I would fly back here anyway. Ugh. So I said, well, at, at this point, this is ridiculous. Just send me to the next city. Right. Uh, so, so now I've just been chilling out in my hotel for three days here. Uh, waiting for the rest of the guys of this band to arrive. Right. Okay. Wow. And what city Does are you in? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes uh, total sense and no sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm in a city. I was last week. I played a concert in Hangzhou. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I'm in a city called Chongqing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what are the two artists that you're playing with over there? 
the one I played with last weekend, his name is Lee Hom Wang, and I've, he's a fantastic uh, singer that I've been working with since about 2009. Mm-hmm. And the one I'm working with this weekend is another guy named Jeff Chang, who I yeah I started working with him a couple years ago too. Cool. So uh, I kind of I kind of juggle. <clears throat> my friends think this is kind of amusing, but I kind of juggle about three or four Asian pop artists. Yeah. Right now, because uh, none of them work like you know eight months straight nonstop. They all kind of just do a couple shows here, a couple shows there. Right. And um, so I wind up flying back and forth to Asia uh, every so often to do gigs with one of these artists. Right, right. And it just so happened that they were back-to-back, this almost back-to-back this time. Cool, cool. And it, it seems like throughout your career you've had a balance of, like, American artists that were based out of L.A., but also international artists, whether they were Latin or Asian or whatever. Um, how, did, how did you make that jump um, like how did you get beyond the artists that were, that were just in LA? Cause I mean, it's hard enough to, to break in, in LA and just get work based out of there. Um, but mm. what, what led to you doing all this international work? Mm. Well, it sounds like we already started the interview. Have we started? Oh yeah. We've been, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, excellent. All right. Well then, uh, let, let me, let me, uh, let me clear my throat. No, we were just chatting. So I, um, yeah, but that's a good question. Um, I think it's it's interesting that um, I guess I, you're right. I, I actually find that I work with more people outside of the U.S. than I do from people that are from the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, whether it be Latin artists or Asian artists or, or uh, artists from the U.K. or Ireland or right. Spain or something like that. And I think um, – I'm not exactly sure why that happened. I used to live in Miami, yeah, and I I started uh, working internationally a lot from from being based out of there. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to LA in 2004, I think that just kind of continued. I, I was someone that you can call to go do a tour that was somewhat far away, and I would learn the music and and do this gig for three months or something, and come back. Um, I'm not the only one who does stuff like that. There's a couple other drummers who, uh, I, I mean, I have a friend named Charlie Paxson mm-hmm. who just seems like he's always either in Japan or France working with some artist who I haven't heard of before. <laughs> and, and there, there's a, and there's a couple other guys in LA that do similar things though. I do, I guess I do a fair share of music in LA, but I don't do a lot of tours that are based out of LA, I guess. Right. Um, the, the tours I do are more internationally, uh, formed and the, the gigs and sessions I do, uh, are more local in LA and they stay there, you know? Right. Right. So with, with all the international work you do, I mean, is, is LA the best location to, for you to do that from? I mean, have, would it make more sense for you to live in London or something? Uh, what, what keeps you in LA there? Um, I still think it's a great base. Mm -hmm. I still think, uh, uh, I think some of these gigs that I do, even though they're, they are outside the country, uh, they still are getting their musicians out of LA, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, they get, they're getting a, a, a LA bassist, guitarist and drummer or something. And then we, then we fly to, you know, some other place to go play. Right. So I, I still think, um, being, you know, I always thought, it would be kind of hypothetically cool to get a gig that's so steady that I can live anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people talk about that. I mean, uh, but I don't know. I still feel like I want to be in a, a music, 
city, a music capital, uh, an, an L.A., New York, Nashville, or right. like you said, London or something. Um, maybe just for the camaraderie aspect, sure. I really like I really like being surrounded by other great musicians that are all working and very inspired and, you know, making great albums. And, uh, I mean, the biggest reason why I moved to LA was because most of the records I was listening to were being made there. Uh So for that reason alone, I'm like, I just want to be closer to the music that I listen to. Right. You know, and then, and then also along with that, I got to meet all the musicians that I, that they were making music there and, and all the songwriters and, record at the studios that I was checking out. And, um, so I'm still sort of, uh, was it's like 15 years later, I'm still sort of enamored with Los Angeles still the, the music, the musicians, the studios, the, the, the lifestyle. It hasn't gotten old to me yet. Good. And that, then it's where you belong (laughs) because (laughs) we've, we've talked about, um, you know, whether it's LA or New York or wherever you live, like you, you have to thrive on whatever that town is made of and whatever that music scene consists of. Um, and if, like, if, if you thrive on it, then, then it'll keep you motivated and serve you. But you know, if, uh, if, (laughs) if it's exhausting to you or intimidating or, you know, or if the pace of life in that city, apart from the music scene just doesn't match with, you know, your, your pace of life, um, you could have a hard time. Yeah. I've, I've told some of my friends that it's good to live in a place where you're, you're excited to get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> you know, and wherever that is, you know, right. where, where it could be, if it's, if it's Portland or Seattle or Boston or Chicago or Atlanta or DC or, or Barcelona or, you know, whatever, right. uh, wherever it is, you should like, it's, it'd be great if hypothetically you, you woke up, opened your eyes and said, up. Oh, I can't wait to do something today or I can't wait to get my day going. Right. right. You know, if if you're not feeling that way, if you're not inspired or you're kind of grossed out by the city you're living in or the the environment you're in, maybe that's a good reason to move. Yeah. You know, and I, I lived in LA for five years and, and I left before I got to that point. Um, (laughs) because for the first year or two, I was like you, I was enamored with it. I was excited by it. Like everywhere you turn was just some like amazing, stimulating, inspiring thing. Um, but for me, after a few years, like it, it started to weigh down on me a little bit, like just the traffic, the expense of it, the, you know, mm-hmm. having to get your parking validated to go to Trader Joe's, um, <laughs> you know, just that kind of LA st- and some people like you that just like, you don't even notice that it rolls off your back. Um, but uh, yeah, it might've helped that, that, that I grew up. Uh, right outside New York. Right. I was going to uh, ask. So I, I, had, I had one city and then I went to college in Miami. So I had another city. Right. So then by the, by the time I moved to LA, that was my third city. Right. Uh, it wasn't like I moved to LA from a small town or some paradise and, or some farm. And then I moved to LA. I'm like, whoa, this city's overwhelming. I, I already, I already lived in two overwhelming cities. So right. I just moved to a third overwhelming <laughs> city. And, uh, and so the, the, the lifestyle didn't, uh, freak me out that much. And, you know, I, yeah. I could see why some people would be burnt out by yeah. living in any city, not just that city, sure. any city. Sure. Definitely. Um, I, I realized recently that when it, when it comes to LA, especially, I think like I've spent a little bit of time in New York and Nashville, but in LA, especially if, if, if you're an extrovert with a short attention span, you'll do great. <laughs> you know, if, if you're able to just switch gears really fast and, and just kind of like show up wherever with whoever and, and be, 
you know, extroverted and engaged, then you'll do fine. But if, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm someone who I'm a little more in my head. I'm, I'm not so quick to just like insert myself in a, uh, a social situation or whatever, you know? So uh, it was, yeah. Have you, do you listen to any, uh, Tim Ferriss stuff, his no. podcast or his books? He's uh he has a podcast. He also uh, wrote the the four hour work week, the four hour body, those books. Yeah. And uh and he he has a phrase that he uses to describe himself as a uh, high functioning introvert. Which I, <laughs> I which when when he said that I'm like, man, that must be uh, that must be what I am because I I consider myself a very introverted person. Mm-hmm. I like privacy. I like solitude. I like doing things by myself. But I also come across as a friendly human being that can function in, in, in um, you know, group activities. Sure. But uh, so I think that, like, like you said, like L.A., it's you can't be just uh, an, a total introvert because right. you won't work. You won't exist. You won't you won't be relative, I it's, guess. It's not going to come to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, but it, so if, if you're introverted, you must be a high functioning uh, outgoing introvert. If yes. you're going to uh, work or have any friends yeah. or, you know, see, see any activities. Yeah. And my time in LA, um, I, I live in Atlanta now and, and I feel like a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the outgoing um, qualities that would have served me better in LA that I wasn't quite able to uh, conjure up. You know, by the time I got to Atlanta, I was like, "Oh, that's that's what you have to do. You just like you you're an introvert, but you gotta you gotta work on your extrovert impression." Um, <laughs> so by the time I got to Atlanta, I feel like I was I had a better handle on that, and it's resulted in just you know better better everything uh, in my life yeah. and, and career. Um, but I think and you, it's, you'd be surprised. No, go ahead. Well, it's interesting about drummers specifically. I think a lot of us are introverts who do good impressions of an extrovert. Um, because... I was about to say the exact same thing. Okay, like cool. The, uh, I, the more I talk to my friends, the more I realize so much of us are similar. So many of us are similar. Uh, and I had a guitarist friend once explained to me, he's like, well, there had to be a certain moment in your upbringing, in your prepubescent uh, life or something where where you felt comfortable sitting in a practice room by yourself for hours and hours and hours. Right. I mean, that's what most musicians spend hours and hours by themselves in a room with headphones on learning how to play their instrument. Right. So they were, they were, they probably started out somewhat introverted. And then, like you said, they had to learn how to function in a group atmosphere. Right. And, and it's, it's also this weird paradox because we, um, you know, to, to a certain extent, our machine runs on applause, our machine runs on attention. Like we want to be on stage, you know, it's not like we want to just stay home in our practice room all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. so we want to be out there. We kind of want to be the center of attention, but at the same time, we're at the back of the stage with this fucking wall in front of us, you know, Mm -hmm. cymbals and drums. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird juxtaposition of like, I want to be out there, but I don't want to be all the way out there. Yeah, it's a good role. The, the 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 drummer's role is is great and unique that way, where you can sit down, you can right. be behind, you could be you could be in the back back of the stage, you could be behind a shield of gear, right? And you don't ever have to stand up, you don't have to <laughs> sing, you don't have to engage with the audience, you don't have to put your foot up on the monitor and have fans blown through your hair. You can just be back there, 
hearing the music, feeling the music, hearing the applause, but just kind of with your head down, you can play. And right. that's what, kind of one of the things I love about being a drummer. I don't have to go to the front of the stage. I don't have to make eye contact with the audience members and, and, and like sing and interact if I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. I can just be back there, just keeping time. And that's still, you're doing your job. Right. You know? Right. I think the thing that some thing, uh, some people find intimidating about LA is that there's like pro- maybe more than any other city, like there's a casting aspect to the music industry there. Um, mm. and, and it's not always enough to just like sit back there and close your eyes and groove. Like you have to have a look, you have to have some moves and some mannerisms and like, you have to be very visual. Do you find that to be mm. the case? Uh, some scenarios, yeah. I would say a, a, a certain genre that's probably exists yeah. like young pop, sure. young pop. But I think, uh, you know, there's. I think people have people ask me like students or something will ask me, you know, how important is image? And and I've said, you know what? Image is very important, Mm -hmm. Uh, but not in the way that you think. Not like I have to be chiseled and looking like Brad Pitt to get every gig out there. Right. Um, You just have you just have to be somewhat memorable. Yeah. If, if you if you walk into a gig with a pirate hat and a patch on you, over your eye and you play the crap out of the drums, someone will be like, "Dude, who was that guy with the with the eye patch and the yeah. hat? He was great." Yeah, get you pirate know, guy. Just, <laughs> get pirate guy. That's not a that's not an ideal look for like the Ariana Grande band, but right. they'll remember the dude with the eye patch. You're like, so it's it's unfortunate, but like live music is somewhat visual. Yeah. Now you, that doesn't mean you have to look a certain way you just have to have any look i think yeah. any look at all is, is a look that, that's what and i was so, gonna say like you don't you don't have to fit into a specific box you just have to appear as if you've made some deliberate decisions about <laughs> yeah. right? whatever whatever yeah, walk, they are you walk into the audition and you're dressed like a lumberjack <laughs> and someone's like dude l- lumber lumberjack dude played his ass off right you know and there it is. Right. So, and you, you, yeah, you don't have to be like, you know, just looking like some kind of goth freak or or George Clooney. You just have to look like anything that someone w- would remember, right. I think, is good enough. Right. You know, you, you can't go in there in cargo shorts and flip flops and hope that your playing will speak for you and, yeah. <laughs> you know, make you memorable. Yeah. Um, yes. Unless you're going for the Jimmy Buffett gig, maybe. Th- there That's you about go. it. There, oh, man. <laughs> When a brief aside, when my wife's sister got married in Vegas at the Flamingo, they did it at at an outdoor chapel um, in in the big Flamingo courtyard. And on one side of the chapel was like a 20 foot hedge. And on the other side of the hedge was a big pool stage where Jimmy Buffett was playing. And they Mm -hmm. had they had to ask Jimmy Buffett to take a set break so that my sister in law could get married. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and, and did they do it they did it and all the wedding photos were were photobombed by parrot heads and and it was <laughs> that was memorable that was <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. there it is oh man. memorable every time i never hear forget jimmy, yeah every time i hear jimmy buffett i just flash back to that that courtyard in the flamingo god what a mess Okay. 
caes de mi vida cada día rechazando el impulso del reloj. I want to go back to your 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 upbringing in in Jersey there and your time at Miami. Um, was was this always what you were gonna do? Like, were you from from a young age? I'm gonna play drums. I'm gonna tour. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Not, I couldn't say I was that uh, exact or deliberate about what I wanted to do. I I. I liked music. I liked a lot of hobbies. I liked sports. I liked skateboarding. I liked, uh, I did well in school as far as academics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't really have a game plan. You know, I, uh, uh, in fact, when I, when I was uh, a junior in high school, I started applying to colleges for engineering and things like that. Yeah. But, but I, but music was a, a, a love of mine, especially the drums. So by the time I was about a senior in high school where you really had to start deciding where you're going to go to school and what you want to do, I did a 180 and kind of informed my parents that uh, I think going and studying engineering is going to be a mistake hmm. because all I can think about is playing the drums right now. It's hmm. all I think about when I go to bed at night, when I wake up in the morning. So I think I'm going to fail out of school in whatever other subject I do. Yeah. So could I, could I try going to school for drums? And that my parents had no way of knowing what I was talking about. They're like, you can go to school to play drums? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. It's, it's, and my mom's, my mom's Korean, so she's like, it's doctor, lawyer, or engineer. That's it. Right. Those are your three options. Right. So I, so, so I went and I found a bunch of music schools that I could apply to and audition, uh, for, and, um, and I wound up getting into a couple of them. And then I wound up, uh, when I, when I was 18, I, I drove down to Miami and went with the, my drums in the trunk of my car. Wow. And I went to that school. And the idea was, I told my parents, I'm going to go for a year just to see if this is right. Yeah. You know, uh, this could be a big mistake, but I need to try it out because this is what my heart's telling me that I need to keep playing the drums. Right. Uh, so I went down there and I loved it. I love studying music. I love being around other people, my own age, like all, you know, really hungry and really, uh, generous with the styles of music everyone's listening to and yeah. check this out, check this out. And you want to jam? And I loved it. And then I wound up getting a couple, uh, uh, scholarships to keep going there cause it was too expensive to continue. So right. I wound up applying for all these scholarships and I got them. So I think that was a sign that Maybe I should come back for a second year. Yeah. And then it just, you know, it, it just kind of took off. It was a hobby that I never stopped doing. It wasn't an idea of like a career path. Right. I still don't really have a career path in mind yet. I'm just trying to formulate <laughs> that. But I don't know uh, if any hobby. of us do, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, a hobby just a hobby just transformed itself into a, a lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, like, as a, you know, a 17 or 18 year old kind of doing your own research about music schools to go to, what what other schools were you looking at, and why did you settle on Miami? I looked at University of Miami. I looked at Berkeley. I looked at the Manhattan School of Music, Juilliard, uh, the New School, Oberlin, Ithaca, Westchester, the University of Illinois, uh, North Texas. Um, where else did I look? Eastman. Yeah. Uh, and this is just a lot of, uh, recommendations and, and things. This is like, you know, I didn't have, I don't, there, Google didn't exist back then. So this right. is just a lot of word of mouth and, 
and writing letters to different places and getting uh, pamphlets sent to me. And um, I chose Miami for a number of reasons. One, uh, I wanted to be in a music school that was also in a big city mm-hmm. so I could potentially gig at night. Right. Because my idea wasn't just to practice for four years. My idea was to immediately get like um, on-the-job training also, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and just try to gig. So, so that was a prerequisite for me. And then also I knew a faculty member and a student that had gone to Miami, and they both raved about it. Mm-hmm. And then when I went there, I kind of got a great vibe out of the school, out of the faculty. It's a um, It has a – a good teacher student ratio. I think there are maybe 50 drummers in the whole school. Yeah. So, and they really, um, kind of encouraged, uh, doing your own thing there. I mean, Uh you had to study big band, you had to study mallets, you had to study everything that, that was in the, uh, in the curriculum. But then they also wanted you to kind of chase your own things too. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, the teacher would often say, what are you listening to? Bring it in. We'll we'll work on it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, they had avant-garde ensembles, they had bebop ensembles, they had fusion ensembles, studio music, uh, like recording ensembles. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it was very progressive uh, compared to some other schools. And I thought it might, if I did well, it might give me a good uh, launching pad to, to hit the real world when I got out. You yeah. know, because although I did love... I mean, at the time, all I could listen to was like Tony Williams and stuff and right. I fantasized about being a hard bop drummer in New York City at the time. Yeah. I also thought like maybe I need to be able to play with a click. Maybe I need to be able to record. Maybe I need to compose and engineer. And you could study all of that there if you want. Right, right. So it was really and, – and the Latin scene was great. I didn't expect to be so involved in that. And I wound up uh, just kind of being wrapped up in – the Brazilian music and the salsa scene and, and, uh, all the Latin pop stuff almost immediately. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, at, in the beginning, having very little idea what I was doing other than, you know, knowing how to play a songo and a samba. Right. And, and, and even when you play those, when you get to Miami, you're playing them wrong because, because, because <laughs> what, what I learned in New Jersey, it wasn't what they were doing down there. They're right. like, dude, that's horrible. Do it like this. Right, and, right. um, so it was a fantastic education in, in that regard also. Um, so I, I had, yeah, a, I had a similar it. experience going to grad school in Kansas city. Um, because I went there to, uh, do a graduate degree in classical percussion. And I, you know, I had been playing drum sets since I was eight and that was like my first love, but my, most of my college years were devoted to, to classical and the drum set that I was playing was just jazz. It was big band and, and small group. Like that was it. Um, so when I got to Kansas city, you know, I, I started on my little study path of, of the classical thing, but more and more, I just got immersed in the jazz scene in Kansas City, like you did in the in the Latin scene in Miami. And like you look around and you're like, Jesus, there's all this here. There's all this history. There's all these players like I, I don't want to be in a practice room with a fucking marimba or <laughs> a couple of timpani. Like I want to be out at the club playing jazz. So I did that for like seven years um, and <clears throat> it it kind of reconnected me with my love of the drum set and and after i got my classical degree i never really touched a marimba again um Mm -hmm. so when when you were in miami excuse me 
playing all this Latin, did it kind of um, refocus where you thought your career could go or like what kind of drummer you thought you wanted to be? Still not. At this point, <laughs> still no direction. Just, just, just everything just all the time. Try, honestly, at that point, I was just trying to soak in everything I could. Just really just soaking in every style, jamming with everyone who would, who would play with me, uh, saying yes to every gig anyone would, uh, would, would offer. And I, I didn't really have – I wasn't into – honing down my my approach or or anything i was into just expanding 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 right you know uh absorbing everything so uh i i really you know at that age i really thought i can i was so idealistic i guess that i could learn everything right i mean i'm not even talking about styles of music i thought i could learn everything i read books all the time i'm like you know what i'm gonna learn how to, I'm going to be a chess master by the end of the year. I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, I would just like, I thought I had enough time in the world to learn everything. I started studying like three languages. I was doing all sorts of things. Wow. And then, you know, and then life happens and you just start running out of time. And like, as you get older, you start to realize, wow, I actually do need to start focusing a little bit. Right. But when you're 20, (laughs) <laughs> 21 you don't you you can keep everything wide open right and like and just just as long as you have the stamina to keep going you can just you know say yes 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 and just do all sorts of uh, you know fun exciting and interesting educational things right so that that's that's the way i looked at it i was doing equally as much jazz playing as i was latin playing and i was also doing i was playing in a ton of rock bands at that point mm-hmm. uh and just trying not to suck at any of those styles was my goal, you know? Right. And, um, and then, um, you know, I didn't pick a style. I think just from repetitive, like hours and hours and hours, certain things started to surface a little more than others. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of happened, it kind of happened naturally. Right. Right. Um, so did you, how long did you spend in Miami after you were out of school? Uh, you know what? I've tried to leave Miami every year <laughs> after school. No offense to Miami. I just was like, I was intent on moving back to Manhattan hmm. from like, I wanted to leave the, the day I graduated. But hmm. then I kept on getting like one job offer that was pretty good. I'm like, okay, this one's pretty good. I'll just wait for this one to be over. I'll wait for this tour to be over. I'll wait for this uh, recording project to be over. I'll wait for when my lease is up, then I'll move. And it right. kept on being these kind of, these kind of um, uh, these kind of dates that kept on uh, being pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed forward. Next thing I know, it's six years later. Wow! And and I'm like, okay, now now this is getting ridiculous. I should either <laughs> I should either buy a home and just live here, or I should move now. Right. So I, I had to draw a line. Like I said, this is it. And uh, you know, so I moved on my thirtieth birthday to L.A. Wow. Cool. So that was it. That was the, that was the date I drew in the calendar said nothing. I will accept no gigs after this. Yeah. And I will not, I will not sign another lease or anything after this date. You know, I am moving. Right. So that's what I did. Right. So why, why, uh, LA? Cause you said you were jonesing to get back to Manhattan. Um, why did it become LA all of a sudden? There's two reasons. One, uh, I had, 
uh, well, first, the first reason was that I thought moving to, I grew up in New Jersey, so mm-hmm. I thought moving back to New York would be a little bit like moving home. Right. In some ways. Not really, but in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I thought moving to another city would be like another chapter in my life, another mm-hmm. adventure. Uh, you know, I could fail, but at least I tried, that kind of idea. Right. And then the second thing was uh, my fiance at the time, she didn't like snow and cold winters. So I said, I, I gave her, I basically gave her a list of like six music cities that I'd be cool to move to. Interesting. Uh, what were they? The one, uh, I think it was San Francisco, LA, Nashville, New York, Boston, um, Chicago, and London. Wow. So that's seven. Yeah. So I said, I'll, I said, I will move to any one of those you pick. Wow. And she, and, 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 and we went and visited all of them, almost all of them. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then she chose LA. Wow. So it was like, it was a combo uh, of two reasons. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, secretly I was hoping that she would choose that one anyway, but, right, um, right. Well, that's but, so interesting. And it was, it was you, great. You kind of you you kind of left it out of your own hands. You know, so many so many musicians really make like intentional, calculated moves about the city they they want to kind of go after. You know, but you mm-hmm. like it, it's interesting. I'm I'm hearing this um, uh, kind of through line uh, when it comes to your playing and your musical interests and your intellectual interests and uh, like all the way up to where you live. You're just kind of like. Anything's possible. I could, <laughs> you know, I'm open. I'm open to whatever. Um, I, a, I think I am open to whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm not. I'm not a super hippie dude either. I'm not like that. I. I think, you know, you can prepare yourself. Right. You can. You can. You can prepare your your own self as much as you'd like. Mm-hmm. But the outside world is a little hard to control. It's a little more fun to just kind of prepare yourself, and then just like throw yourself in a raft and go down river, you know, and, and, and kind of just, you know, bounce off of rocks and float and speed up and slow down. And, and, and I feel like that's sort of been how I've lived my life. And it, uh, I guess more than not, it hasn't failed me. It's given me a lot of adventure, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of surprises. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like if I tried too hard to kind of uh, force my life into a certain mold, it might not have turned out as well. Right, you know? right. And I think in general, whether it's your career or your, your personal life or whatever, the more, the more specific you get about what you want or what you think you'll ha- will, will happen or should happen, um, the, like the more specific you get, the, the greater the possibility is that you'll be disappointed or surprised <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, that it, it won't turn out uh, the way you thought. So if you start out like te- – go ahead. <clears throat> no, I was going to say I have, a, I have an expression that I, my friends – I say to my friends a lot and they laugh and it sounds so pessimistic, but it's not. But I say like, dude – Happiness, low expectations. That's the key, you know? Yeah. And, and, but that comes from my, like my, my Buddhist uh, upbringing. But it's just that, um, you know, yeah, if you're uh, – so much of your dissatisfaction comes from expecting a certain out- outcome and mm. getting a different one. Yeah. But if you just prepare yourself for all the outcomes and then just kind of let go yeah. and then anything could happen and you're ready for it. You're like, right. oh, 
I, I was hoping A, but B happened, and I'm cool also with that. Right, you know? right. I like your raft analogy because it, it makes me think of like spend spend your time and energy on on building a kick ass raft, not trying to <laughs> not trying to choose which river you're going to go down. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, exactly. That's cool. So, what were your first moves in LA? Did you know people there? Did you have leads on any gigs? Did you or you know what what was your first uh, few months and years there like? I guess I did have a few experiences and leads prior to moving there because, well, first I was in this band for a while that was signed uh, to a record label. And we did a lot of touring in the U.S. and a 15 passenger van, you know, yeah. driving around and playing gigs. So we, I went to L.A. a bunch through that. And uh, and then I was doing a lot of touring with Shakira. And then half the band was based out of L.A. Uh-huh. So the ba- the bassist and the percussionist and and stuff – uh, and a couple of the crew members were out of LA. So whenever we went through LA to do a concert or a TV show or something, we would all hang and we'd go to like, a, a backyard barbecue or a sushi restaurant or a gig or a jam or something. So I felt like even before I moved there, I was being sort of ingrained in the local scene right. and, uh, meeting a lot of the local musicians and I guess when I was on tour, I would always meet musicians from L.A. and we just trade numbers and stuff. Sure. I remember um, we did a, a tour for a while where it was like Michelle Branch and Shakira. And all those guys were out of L.A. and we became friends. And then I'm still friends with, you know, half the dudes in her, her old band. And mm-hmm. the same thing happened with Alanis Morissette at the time. Uh, we were doing a lot of gigs uh, back in the day, like co-headlining different TV shows and things. And I met all those um, musicians too, and I'm still friends with all those guys. Right, and right. This is all, all before all before I moved there. Right, and, and so the I Shakira think, the yeah. Shakira thing started while you were still in Miami. It sounds like exactly. Okay, exactly. Yeah. I was it, that started in um, yeah 1998. I started that gig, and uh-huh. I didn't move till I didn't move till 2004. So you kind of so, got it on uh, the ground floor with Shakira, like before she hit. Yeah. Oh, she was already a big star in South America, but that was it. Gotcha. And then, uh, and then I recorded a record with her, and then that got it released, and that became more of like an international like album, a crossover album. And uh, so that was a, that was a pretty big gig for me at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, and that helped me. Uh, back to what we were saying, it helped me meet so many other musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, touring and then meeting musicians and being a. Uh, high functioning introvert and then going out and like chatting with people and trading numbers. And then, uh, and then what I did was I finally, I went out to a NAM show one January. Oh, bless you. And exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was my first NAM show ever. I went out and then for the rest of the week, I just went like apartment hunting. Mm. Uh, this is in January. So I went around, I found, the, I found a house to rent and I, I signed a, a lease for this house, uh, ready to move in in March, and then went back to Miami, packed up all my stuff, and then moved out. And then when I, when I got there, I just kind of was just hanging out and hitting up all the people that I already knew, the right. people that I toured with. Like you think that a, that a city like L.A. would be kind of uh, closed and uh, as far as socially and click-wise, but right. I found it to be surprisingly the opposite. I found like everyone I met was super generous and encouraging and, Hey, come over my place or 
I had people like, Hey, I have a session tomorrow morning. Why don't you come and hang out at my session? I'm like, really? All right. right. So things like that are recommending me to bands or to, to jam with other people. So I, I was working within the first two weeks I moved there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just by I, showing it's, up, it's, just it's, by showing up at the barbecue or the hang or the, whatever it was like being present, showing your face. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I, I, the, I guess my, my point I is like, I you, didn't, you knew people there, you had connections, but once, once you got there, you didn't expect the people you knew to, to be like, Oh, Brendan's here now. Let me call Brendan. Like you had to go to them and say, Hey, I'm Brendan. I'm here. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Well, what I thought was this is a city filled with thousands of amazing drummers. I'm yeah. just going to have to wait my turn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to have to wait a year, two years, whatever. And I'm cool with that. Right. I, that's what I had in my mind. I'm going to do that. And then when I got there, I realized a little bit differently that it's a, it's a vibrant city that has multiple musicians. And like it has lots of guitarists, lots of bassists, lots of singers, lots of songwriters that all need drummers. And all the drummers are all working and they all can't do every gig. Right. So then once, once they know you're here, they're like, hey, man, I can't do this gig on Friday. Could you cover for me? You're like, really? Oh, wow. I would love to because I have nothing. So <laughs> right. that, and, that, that, and one gig turns into two gigs, turns into a, a, a band or an audition or a this or that. And um, so I think due to the, uh, the fact that it's, there are a lot of drummers there, that is true, but they're also very successful and they work a lot that you could depend on them having gigs that they cannot do. Right. And then if you, if you are worthy, then they'll ask you to sub for them or cover for them or whatever. Right, and right. that's a great way to start. But yeah, but you have to, like you said, you have to actually let them know that you're alive, that right. you have a pulse right. and that you, that you can keep time. <laughs> I mean, those are important things. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, being, being, being out and about is, is a certain element to working. It seems like Shakira is certainly one of your highest profile gigs, but also like one of your longest standing relationships musically. Um, How have you kind of, you know, every, every artist um, goes through ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys and times of extreme busyness and times of absolute nothing. Um, and, and some artists, I don't think Shakira has gone through this, but some artists go through sort of personal, uh, (laughs) tumultuous times that affect their band or the people they've worked with. Um, what has it been like having that long a, a relationship with a single artist? You know, yeah, that, that is probably the longest gig that I've had. Uh, and it's great. I'm super grateful. Uh, but it, it isn't a full-time gig where uh, I'm just on a salary for 20 years straight. Right. It's the kind of thing where, uh, you know, they call you up and then you work for 18 months or two years and then you take a year or two off, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and so I have to do things to fill those, those off years where she's either making an album or taking a vacation or popping out a baby or whatever it is right. that, that 
uh, I don't ever want to stop working. I, I like the drums enough where I want to play every day mm-hmm. and, um, I don't really take, you know, time off or vacations or anything. So I, I just like making music and I like variety. And, uh, so I think I have enough connections and people know that I'm always down to do a gig, whether it's a single one gig in LA or one, one off on the other side of the planet or one recording or, or something or a bigger, uh, long-term thing. Yeah. So I'm always, um, I, I'm just kind of a workaholic and I think, <laughs> it seems like I think, it. I think, I think people know that about my friends know that about me. So they know that they can always check in with me to see if I'm available to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the people when they're not doing one gig, they probably just, uh, maybe they want to take a break. Right. I don't really take many breaks. Right. Right. Um, and over the, uh, over the course of your tenure with Shakira, um, I, I'd imagine, like you said, there's, you know, there have been 18 month stretches when you basically don't do anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you kind of reenter the atmosphere <laughs> after a period like that? Yeah, that's, that's important. I, I, uh, I think I keep close ties with all of my good friends, all mm-hmm. of my good, uh, musician friends. I mean, uh, we chat all the time. I keep track of what all of my other friends are doing too. Like, Oh, he's on tour with this band. He's on tour with that band. He, and, and when we crisscross on tour, we get together. And right. when, when I have, I have a couple of days off, I go home and then I, I go see this band or I go to, to this gathering. I think, uh, I don't go away for months at a time and just disappear. Right. I think, I, I think I stay pretty in touch with all of my friends and, um, and that way when I get home, I feel like I, I'm interested in going to see, you know, Oh, there's this Monday night jam that this guy's doing. I want to go check it out or, or so-and-so's playing on Saturday here or, or we're having a party here or something. Right. I, I think I want, I want to be involved in the scene. And, um, I also, I'm pretty good with my scheduling. Yeah. Like if someone asks me, Hey, could you do these gigs for me in October? And it's only March. I'll say, you know what? Let me get back to you. Let me pencil it in and I'll get back to you as the time approaches. And yeah. I, 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 I have a lot of people that are asking me to do gigs that are kind of far off in advance. Mm hmm. And I kind of just pencil it in yeah. and then I, I stay, stay in touch with them as the time approaches. And if I'm available, I say, totally looks like I'm going to be able to do it. Let's do it. Right. And, uh, and that way it, it appears as though all year long I'm constantly working, right. but it's really, I'm just, I'm just kind of juggling a lot of different things and I'm squeezing different things in because, uh, I was good at managing my time way in advance, you know? Right, right scheduling and and time management and not dropping any of those balls i think is is something that that most musicians like some musicians are naturally good at it you seem like you'd be naturally good at it but um it's just like it's an organization skill that i think a lot of musicians have to learn the hard way sometimes <laughs> um you know by i I, t- I tell my wife that the two worst things about my my job as being a freelance drummer are scheduling and negotiating mm these are, these are things that are not musical that take up most of my time. Right. Most of my time is scheduling and negotiating, uh, meaning like negotiating rates and then scheduling uh, gigs, rehearsal times, uh, backline rentals. And I'll, I am 
I wake up and I just get a mountain of emails. I got up to sort through all the, all the time. Yeah. And when I just, I just want to be practicing or listening to the new Brad Meldow record or something. Right. And, 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 and I, I just, but I cannot work if I don't take care of these things. Mm-hmm. And I wish someone would have told me a long time ago that you really have to be good at this first. Yeah. If you want to be a freelance drummer. Right. You know? Right. And it's interesting. I think that that falls into the uh, the same bucket with like the social aspect, the hang. It's something that you have to learn by yourself, sometimes the hard way, because, um, you know, in in high school, whether you're taking private lessons or in you know, a college music program, um, the focus is so much on the music and so much on the playing that you're mm. um, you're kind of I know I was kind of lulled into this state of, of false security where you're like, my playing will speak for me. My playing will uh, do scheduling for me. My playing will attract gigs for me. Um, and as you go along, you realize, like, no, you have to go out and be a person, and you also have to have your shit on lockdown <laughs> when it comes to scheduling and money management and, and all that. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with you that that when I was younger, I had the same exact thoughts. That I just, um, it's all about the music, man. And, and my, and, and my playing, my playing's going to speak for itself. That's right, it. Right. And, and I still, I'm still stubborn about that stuff. I still kind of say that to myself half the time. Mm-hmm. And then I have to be real and I have to say, no, you have to take care of this. No, you have to do this. It's part of the job. Yeah. You know, if you just want to be some artist off in a cabin playing beats, you know, that's cool. You can do that and your, your music will speak for itself. That's cool. Right. But if you actually want to function in the music industry, it's a business. Yeah. You have to have those other things going too. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, there's skills and you do learn on the job. There's no, there's not too many courses that will teach you how to do this correctly. <laughs> and there's also, there's also not one way to do it Yeah. because uh, what works for one guy doesn't work for someone else. Yeah. You know, that, and, that and is I know lesson, that because, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. The, no, you go ahead. Th- that is the lesson of this podcast. I mean, we've interviewed 220 some odd cats and gotten 220 some odd stories about, about mm. how they do what they do and the path they took to get where they are. Um, and you know, some of them, some of them are doing arena tours and some of them are playing, you know, local clubs in Portland. But but they've all gone through this process of figuring out what kind of musician they want to be, what kind of music they want to play, and you know what their blood type is as far as where they want to live and and all that. So uh, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more that there is no one way to do it. And no, I mean, yeah, not, I, not only is there more than one way to do it, I don't think any two ways are the same. Yeah, I, I get very suspicious of people that tell me that they have the answer. Right. <laughs> if someone tells me they have an answer, I'm like, oh, cool. What, what's, what's your idea? Right. But when they say they have the answer, right. you know, I know, I know the right way to do this, or I know what works, or I know the only way that, you know, I immediately get cynical and I'm like, okay, what is your one way that works? Because <laughs> I don't believe that. I right. believe that there are so many ways to hold the drumstick. There are so many sure. ways to play the drums. There are so many ways to interact socially. There are so many ways to, to save and spend money. There, there, uh, that you can't, uh, you can't just have one um, set of ideas and, and apply that to everybody. Everyone's right. an individual, especially in the, in the world of music that is so subjective as it is. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, even uh, between me and some of my best, best friends – 
who we all work, but we all do it differently. Yeah. And so, and, and, and we can all com- compare and joke about that, but it's working, but in different ways. Right. And it's, uh, it's like and, what you said yeah. about image. Uh, you know, you, it, you don't, it, it doesn't have to be any one thing. It just has to be something. <laughs> you know? Something. Exactly. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. You recently uh, gave a clinic at Musicians Institute in L.A., yeah, that was uh, last week. Yeah, so- I, I I literally got off of I did three months straight with Perry Farrell uh, mm-hmm. from James Addiction, Porno right. Papyros. I got to L.A. for one day. I did a clinic there, and then I flew to Asia. Ooh. So <laughs> that was it. <laughs> nice. So what was uh, what what did you cover in that clinic, and and what were your impressions of you know the average twenty uh, year old who's studying at, at Musicians Institute? Well, this, this was a two hour clinic where it was me on stage, the, the drummers, the students in the audience. So I didn't really, it wasn't a workshop where I could really gauge the levels of the different students. I didn't hear anyone else play. Mm -hmm. Um, but the people that showed up were super great, asked great questions. Uh, a couple of my adult friends showed up too, like, uh, uh, the the guy who runs the program, Stuart Jean, mm-hmm. uh, my drummer buddy Jason Sutter was there. Yeah, uh, Al Albi uh, Bonacci was there. Was uh, Kevin was Stevens the there? Members there. He wasn't there that day, but okay. Kevin is the reason why I started listening to your podcast. Oh, cool! You did a Kevin. Ste- you did a Kevin Steven episode. I checked it out. Yeah, I I listened to all the episodes of all of my friends. Right. That, so. Uh, on the internet. So I checked his out and I'm like, Oh, that's a cool podcast. I'm going to subscribe to it. Oh, nice, nice. So, so I adore Kevin and he and Jason Sutter and I all went to UM together. Right. So, um, but no, he was on a uh, two week vacation in Europe with his family. So he couldn't be there. What an asshole. But, uh, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's everything but that. But, uh, yeah, um, I know. I know. <clears throat> I'm just joking. We really don't know him. He's, he's the nicest dude. So, um, but no, what did I cover? I think uh, I I like to do my clinics where they're about one third uh, playing, mm-hmm. one one third teaching, and one third Q and A. So I, I try to manage the time where I do a little bit of playing to break the ice, and then we do some Q and A, and then I teach some concepts that hopefully it's something that I, they can actually take home that day and start working on. Right. And then uh, some more Q and A, some more playing. So that's that's what I do. Um, I used to do a lot more play alongs. Sure. And now I've late I've lately been into kind of just uh, improvising freely on the drum set just to change things up. Right. Right. And, you know, feel it feels a little more naked that way and vulnerable and humiliating. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> and I, I also think it's like a little. It's more accessible to drummers um, to just to just play the drums and not, not have too many moving parts or tracks or, you know, uh, mm. kind of a full fledged production going on. It's like, how do you, how do you sound in a room just playing the drums? Um, mm-hmm. and what ideas can they take away from that? Um, in, in the, in the sort of teaching or instruction, uh, section of your clinic, like what, what concepts, um, 
did you cover? What are a couple of the things that you felt that those students could take home that day and just kind of start applying? Yeah, well, uh, I have I have a three ring binder filled with drum exercises that I've written over the past couple of years that I like to unleash on my. I practice them myself. But I also unleash them on private students when they come over, and that's usually where I grab one or two pages out of that and teach that every time I do a clinic. And I try. I've done multiple things at MI now. So I try not to repeat myself. Right. Even if this, I mean, the students are going to be the same because every two years there's a turnover, but I still just for my own sake, I try to, I try to break it up. So the one I brought in this time was, um, an idea of how to kind of calibrate all your limbs to play in time together. Mm -hmm. And, and it's this, uh, sort of, um, exercise I do that kind of, uh, you play basically, it's hard to explain, but you, you start off with playing all eighth notes, all four of your limbs at the same time, like jun, 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 like that. Yeah. Uh, right hand, left hand, right foot, and hi-hat foot, all. Yeah. And then you start to add, add accents and add rim shots and then take away notes, like adding rests, until you're left with nothing but doom, ish, doom, ish, huh. doom, ish. It's as opposed to the opposite of starting with that and then building. I actually start with the entire bar chock full of eighth notes and yeah. then you take everything away and then by the time you're left with a simple beat it feels very in time and like uh you know almost gridded to to the to the groove that right, you're playing right and then and then you could do the same thing with 16th notes same thing and you can start taking away notes until you have some beat that sounds like but it starts with playing all the limbs all the notes and just kind of warming up and trying to get your left hand to really match your right hand, trying to get your right foot to really line with your right hand and left hand so there's no flaming going on right. in your body at all. Yeah. So, uh, and then you can take everything and then shuffle it. You can do that in 6-8. Yeah. You can do a whole bunch of, you can, you can do it with brushes. You right. can do it like, there's so many ways to do it. You can move your hands around so you're playing on the floor tom instead or you're, or you're doing a rim click with your, uh, with your left hand. So there's a way to do this, uh, and it just keeps expanding. And yeah. I, so that's the idea that I have to do. I'm going to do PASIC this November. So I was trying to come up with something that I thought would, if I reduce it, it would make a nice one hour, um, you know, lesson. Yeah. And that's the one I was thinking. That's the one I tried out, and uh, I feel like that one is a really useful one. It's something that a lot of people, when they come to take a lesson with me, surprisingly, a question I get a lot is, "Man, I, my my backbeat just doesn't feel." steady or i feel like it's a little behind the beat or i feel like it's a little inconsistent mm. and i think it's it's interesting because yeah when we're just playing two and four only with our left hand a lot of times our left hand is just wailing in the air and kind of guessing when it's going to come down right i mean o over time you get better at guessing when is your left hand going to come down on two and four right and hopefully it doesn't it doesn't flam as much with each year but, uh, you know, we're playing something with our right hand, something with our right foot, and we're going two, four, uh, two, four. And then we're hoping that it's grooving and it's mm -hmm. in time yeah. and it's consistent from bar to bar. So I like the idea of coming up with ways where we can kind of train our left hand to play in time with the rest of our body, no matter what, right. you know, at any at any tempo, any dynamic and therefore, and then when you take the the beats, I mean, take the, all the notes away, and you play something very simple, your your hands are used to coming down very in time. Yeah. You know, very mechanical. Your your distance management, your consistency is very yeah. in time and controlled. You know, that's such an interesting concept in in 
there are two things you mentioned. First of all, like I think drummers, whether they're absolute beginners or or seasoned pros, like if they're trying to put something new together, they start by adding. They start with like the minimum number and then adding parts until mm-hmm. you've got everything you're supposed to be playing. Where you're you're talking about the opposite. Just start with everything and take away until you've got what you're supposed to be playing, um, which is a really cool concept and, and a more full body exercise. Um, and, and when you arrive at what you're supposed to be playing, you will have gotten there with like your whole body participating from the beginning rather than trying to like bring a limb online or something as you go. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned is just like consistency of backbeat. It's one of those super simple concepts that, that doesn't get talked about much and that I think we all have trouble with. It's like no matter what style you're playing, no matter what the coordination is, like is your two and four consistent? Are you getting the same sound out of your snare every backbeat? And for most mm-hmm. of us, most of the time, the answer is no. <laughs> mm. You know? Yeah, and then like that it's, it's the first step is awareness, right? But the second step is coming up with actual practical uh, exercises to do that are that are going to bring you closer to what you want, right? You know, right. if we're just saying, if I just say to myself, "Man, sometimes when I record myself, my backbeat is a little all over the place. I'm going to be less all over the place next time I play." Mm-hmm. That's not really a, an actual exercise that you can work on. <laughs> right. You just say, "I'm going to be less all over the place next time I do this." Right. That's not you have to actually come up with ways to do that. Yeah. How are you going to train your left hand to go up and down in time constantly? And then and how am I going to get my left hand to always land with my right hand without flamming? Mm-hmm. How am I going to get my right foot to always hit the downbeat beat one on the crash cymbal without flamming every time? Right. You know, we have to come, we have to come up with exercises or practice routines that are going to achieve those goals. The first thing is awareness to say, I, you know what? I, re- I recorded myself in pro tools. I zoomed in and realized that, oh, holy shit, it's a mess. Right. And then, right. and then now, now, now the second step is what things can I do to, to make this better? Not just, well, next time I'm going to play better. That's not good enough. You know, mm-hmm. you have to train, you have to train your body, train your ears, train, you know, everything to function, uh, more rhythmically, more in time, more, the word I use is calibrated, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, that's so I don't think you should always I mean, it's not very musical to start every beat by playing all the notes at once. Right. It's pu- purely. It's purely a warm up exercise. Sure, it's sure. like you said, you're starting by getting your body pulsating. Yeah. You know, yeah. moving in time, all your all your limbs, not just your right hand. Your right hand has an advantage. If you're a righty drummer, your right hand is pretty nimble already. Right. It's your other limbs that are a little more sluggish. So you want to get everything to be kind of as good as your right hand. Yeah. And yeah. then and then everything will start to line up, you know? Right. And then for me, the the third challenge beyond that is like, you know, there's there's awareness and then you you come up with some way to work on it and, and improve it. Um and and then beyond that, uh the the next challenge is like, okay, you're at the end of the set, you're tired as fuck, you're having to play loud as fuck. Can you still do it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Um, that, yeah, stamina. That, yeah, yeah, stamina endurance aspect is is mm-hmm. um, kind of hard to recreate, you know, uh, in a way. But um, 
uh, that's kind of just the next the next step of awareness. Like if you're in the practice room and you're like, okay, this feels pretty good, but what about the end of the set when, <laughs> when you're uh, flagging? Yeah, there, there's I, I, there's I, I have lists lists of all these mantras that I say to myself all the time, and mm. I will spare you from from most of these. <laughs> but one of them I, I like is you know, um, you know, well, I've already forgotten it. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, one of one of them is is um, there is good enough, and there is better than it has to be. Mm. You know, you you can practice something where it's just good enough. You're like, cool, got it. I can play the beat in time now, right. and then you can practice it better than it ever needs to be done, which means like, can I do this, you know, at, after a th- three sets, three exhausting sets? Can I do do this if I'm sweaty? Can I do this if, uh, you know, if whatever the, right. you know, the, the, the ride symbol swinging up and down or my hi-hat <laughs> fell over or, you know, whatever you have to start coming up with all these, what if scenarios and to see if you can still play it well, right. you know, like I'm working on this Garibaldi beat. I got it. Do you have it? You might have it like just at this tempo today in your practice room, but can you play it faster? Can you play it slower? Can you play it louder? Can you play right. it softer? Yeah. Can you play it if the, if the, if the singer's throwing a microphone stand at your head, can you, <laughs> whatever, you know, yeah. so, uh, you can keep on going as you can see down this, uh, this scenario. Uh, but, but my idea when I'm practicing is I try to practice for all contingencies, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the, conti- and the, um, the conditioning thing is important, especially, I mean, I watch a lot of sports too. And if you watch things like boxing mm-hmm. or MMA or, you know, American football or yeah, something, yeah. I mean, you, if you watch, okay, just watch, um, MMA, it's three to five rounds. These guys are some of the most in shape dudes out there. Yeah. And by the third round, they can barely hold their arms up. Yeah. You know, and usually the guy who who actually has a little more gas in his tank is the one who's going to win. Right. And if you watch, if you watch, you know, football games, if you if 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 an offense keeps a defense on the field mm-hmm. by the end of the game, that that defense cannot stop anything because they're exhausted. Right. Right. So it's like usually ball possession is part of the game. It's yeah. Like if you can hold on to the ball longer, the other team gets more tired. And on, and on the other side of that, like, you know, Tom, Tom Brady is brilliant unless he's getting pass rushed. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I think part of the reason Tom Brady is so freaking good is because his, his offensive line is so freaking good. Um, mm-hmm. And you can design all the plays you want. Like you can spend all the time in the practice room you want. But, you know, when you're out on the field and you're getting rushed or you're getting rained on or you're getting a mic thrown at your head <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's when you figure out if you really have your shit together or or the mike tyson quote uh, everyone has a game plan until they get punched in the mouth exactly is what it is i thought of the same thing yeah yeah so i i like to think that you know if you think you're prepared enough think again mm-hmm. i mean honestly think again like what else could i do to prepare for this gig that's coming up right you know uh, I think I have the songs memorized, but maybe I only have the songs memorized because I'm listening to it with the words. Yeah. Can I play that? Can I play this music with words? Can I can I just hum the song in my head and get through this entire set? Yep. You know, can I play it with a click track? Can I play it without a click track? You know, can I play it a couple BPMs faster, a couple BPMs slower? You know, yeah. all these things I think about, and that makes by the time you get to a gig. You are just this warrior, right? Who like you? Come at me, bro. Nothing's gonna stop you from. <laughs> yeah, nothing. <laughs> come at me, bro. <laughs> nothing's gonna stop you from sounding awesome that night because you've trained yourself 
to kind of like slay this gig no matter what. Yeah. You know, and I think that really rubs off when, when, when guitarists and bassists and keyboards and singers are on stage with you and you have that type of confidence that no matter what happens, we're going to nail this gig. Right. Then they start to feel that way too. They start right. say, you know what? Nothing's going to go wrong because we're, we're super tight and we're super ready for anything, right. you know? And I, I it, keep, I keep you know, being reminded of uh, something a, a bass player buddy of mine told me. Uh, he told me about when he was in grad school and his two years in grad school, like he was just locked in a practice room. He didn't gig. He mm-hmm. just, he just shedded his ass off. And by the time he came out of that, he had a, he had a different kind of confidence that he hadn't felt before. He said, there's the kind of confidence that comes just from ego and the kind of confidence that comes from like positive reinforcement, people telling you, oh, that was great. You sounded great. But there's, he said, there's no replacement for the kind of confidence that comes from just knowing you've done the work and you're prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Preparation. Yep. That is, that is, that is the thing. Mm-hmm. When people ask me like, <laughs> what should I do? I'm like, prepare, yeah. prepare by practicing, prepare by studying, learning, memorizing, you know, yep. yeah, th- that's, that's what makes you so valuable. Right. And you don't, you don't have to prepare a specific thing. Just prepare something. <laughs> prepare everything right anything and everything cool yeah um well man thanks thanks a lot for doing this it was great it was great talking to you and i really appreciate you uh carving out an hour on the other side of the world there it's probably bedtime for you right now isn't it 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 is it actually is but you know i'm glad i'm glad this has actually worked out well uh you know sometimes when i'm at when i'm home i'm even more swamped but i'm just sitting here in a hotel room right now so (laughs) this is a joy for me cool cool well, uh, safe travels getting home, and uh, and we'll see you. We'll see you back stateside. Thanks a lot. Good luck with everything. Thanks again to Brendan. I had a great time talking with him. Hope you dug that. He is as busy as he is friendly, and as you heard, that's not a coincidence. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer to help support us. You can get in touch with us at workingdrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag working drummer and we'll be featuring those in our stories. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. And like we said, leave us a rating and review on those platforms that really helps new listeners find us and helps us grow. Next week, Matt Krauss will be bringing you his interview with Michael Grando. Hope you check that out, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.